Hello and welcome again to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute of Contemporary Christianity. We're all culture makers, we're all cultural participants, and here on the podcast we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God, in a way that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Aris, and this is episode 6 of season 2 of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This season is all about cultural pressure points, where the ground is shifting under our feet, what the timeless and authoritative Word of God calls normal. Joe Boots here with me today, as well as Joshua Gilo. Uh, he joins us remotely from the Truth Exchange headquarters in Southern California. That's where he works. Josh attended the Revoice conference in St. Louis this past summer, and this is the conference that's had a lot of press. It's been billed as, in their words, supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other gender and sexual minority Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Josh shares with us some of his experiences and reflections on the conference. So please join us as uh, we talk about the family, we talk about the church, Christian hospitality, about mortifying sin, uh, the impossibility of holding a gay identity and Christian orthodoxy, the battle for language. There's, there's so much here. Uh, I think we also set a new record for this podcast for the density of... Uh, Star Trek references in one episode. There's so much to get into here. We actually had to break this interview into two parts. So we've got uh, part one here for you today. And make sure to come back next Friday. We'll have the second half of this uh, this interview. All right. So Josh, Joshua Gilo, you were a uh, just an attendant, a participant. You registered, paid the fee, and, uh, and attended the Revoice conference uh, back in July. I did, and uh, you're, we've uh, we've got you here. We're just glad to have you here to just bring some of your some of your reflections, some of your observations. Uh, tell us about the experiences there. Now, th- this uh, prior to this event, uh, there were a lot of uh, sort of cautionary voices uh, from Presbyterians uh, from the wider evangelical community. Uh, saying that the Revoice conference, based on the program as it was advertised, is that you know th- this is an example of healing the wound lightly. This is this is affirming people in their sin rather than preaching true repentance and uh, true godliness. Uh, w- was that your experience, um, or was this uh, was this a a godly time? Were pe- were people overreacting to this uh, to this event? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And within the setting, going to this event in St. Louis, Missouri, you're surrounded by a historic church, and you, the, the smell of the saints of God who had worshipped there for generations before is there. You see the stained glass windows, this massive pipe organ, uh, songs sung from, from psalters and hymnals, and... You take it all the, all this in, and you think, surely there's what could be wrong with people coming together and and singing high praises to our triune God. But then, when you listen to what's discussed, discussions from lunch tables to discussions inside workshops, and then of course the plenary talks, you pause and you wonder, is this really worship to the triune God? Then you read you read certain things that some of these authors that have host who have put on this event, and you go, "This is really contrary to worship of the Triune God." Um, I I don't want to say that 
There was no encouragement of uh, to to mortify sin. However, culturally, uh, I didn't see that. In fact, um, we could get into that later. I've got a few stories about experiencing rather a uh, a enjoyment of sinful, lustful looking, uh, and things that I would be concerned about for anyone who would have a, like an addiction problem. Uh, I would question if this is really a helpful event to attend. Yeah, that'd be and, fascinating. Yeah. Are, are we recording? Yeah, we are. Are you? Okay. Yes, I am. So I, I just want to make sure. We could edit that part yes. out. Uh, no, we'll leave it in. It, it, Authenticity. Okay. <laughs> Good to see you, Josh. Hey, Joe. Nice to see you. Um, now, there were workshops. That being said, there was workshops that that had discussions on um, how you you deal with struggle. Uh, I didn't attend any of those, so I can't, I can't say this was helpful or this was not. Uh, as far as culture, uh, for the, the, the main plenary talks, there was no encouragement of mortification of sin. In fact, it was, it was very tongue-in-cheek about the faithfulness of, uh, or the sexual ethic of, of the Bible and how, well, you know, David wasn't very faithful, so why should we really be faithful in our sexual uh, and promiscuity? Um, and it was very interesting. I actually attended thinking that the folks there all bought into what is called side B sexuality or homosexuality. And side B is the view that God made me this way. He made me a homosexual, but I am not to act on that in the sense of sodomy. Um, but I can, I can, as far as culturally, I can look like it. I can sound like it. Uh, I, I could go to the gay bars. I want to be in that culture. There's nothing wrong with those things, but I'm not going to participate in sodomy and I will not get married to another man. Or if you're a woman, I won't get married to another woman. So that's side B. The side A is the, the, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Matthew Vines. Uh, the, okay. I'm, I'm a yeah, Christian yeah. and Right. And, well, they would say they're uh, side B would argue that they're a gay Christian as well. Uh, but the, the side A says, well, God made me this way. Therefore, logically, I should be able then to participate in sodomy and also uh, have civil uh, arranged marriages and, and relationships. Mm -hmm. OK, gotcha. So are they trying, uh, Josh, to draw a, dis a distinction between um, praxis and pistis, between what one does and what one believes, as though uh, in a certain sense, on the one hand, you can maintain uh, orthodox Christian belief, at least not be flagrantly violating the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but in terms of one's Christian practice and one's uh, identity, um, these are perhaps not so important. Uh, there, is an, there is at least some attempt here, you're saying, to maintain orthodox Christianity on the one hand, but push the envelope um, as far as is possible in terms of identity and practice without pushing things relationally all the way to, to uh, the 
encouraging the practice of sodomy. Right, and that's the that's where it breaks down is is that they do wind up pushing the envelope. Uh, Greg Coles talks about the desire that he hopes that he will be with somebody of the same sex in a relationship in the new heavens. Uh, Nate Collins, in his book on page three hundred four or excuse me, 303, he says, As we've seen already, it isn't sin merely to experience an internal pull to someone of the same sex. So it would be an overly simplistic response to say, No, I won't be gay in heaven because there is no sin in heaven. One of my main arguments in this book is that being gay is not sinful in itself. So it might seem that a correct response would be, Yes, I will still be gay in heaven. But I don't think that's an adequate answer because the gay identity is a first creation identity. So they they believe that not only that God made them this way, but um, it's the fall that is what distorted things for them. But see, then that breaks down ultimately when they talk about it being first creational. I mean, the logical conclusion would be then to be with somebody, with your helper, your helpmeet that God would then make. They believe that Adam was was inherently would have been gay, right, right, or that so that he could have been, and that would be no big deal. So if so, it, so if God had brought to him another man, it would have been perfectly acceptable for him because it's normative in terms of creation to have a homosexual identity as such. So where where is uh, what's the what's the difference in in the here and now? Why why preach? a level of restraint um why uh why side b is it side b i can't remember who uh, who yeah. abstain from uh, from sodomy and from uh, from uh, gay marriage well that's the conundrum that that side a wants to know and uh, it was somewhat uh amusing the irony that they're all looking that well the homosexual community is looking for community and they're looking to support each other and defend one another and they're attacking each other because they, they have this massive disagreement. And uh, they there was a there was a workshop that was from one of the Old Testament professor at Covenant Seminary, and his lecture was on the Leviticus laws, and specifically on well, if we can now have shellfish, or we can wear garments that are made of cotton and wool. Or we can we can shave we can round the corners of our beard, then why can't we participate in sodomy? And from what I understand, this professor he held the he held the orthodox view, and says, look, it's it's there, it is God's law. It was not rescinded whatsoever. Sodomy is wrong. Uh, homosexual marriage is wrong. So he held the line there. Um, and apparently there was some pushback from those who had, att who had uh, attended the event, but he, he held his ground. So that was that was quite encouraging. That's uh, that's interesting. So like this uh, this idea that you can that you can identify as gay, that your gayness is, is something that's given to you by God, but you also want you don't want to let go of it. Like, traditional Christian orthodoxy regarding sexual activity. Um, and th like, this is from, uh, this is from the stated aims of the conference itself that, uh, this is for, this is for gender or sexual minority Christians who adhere to traditional Christian teaching about gender, marriage, and sexuality. 
uh, like, like it just uh, it just seems like is this not first of all an inherent contradiction, and even like say that uh, say that the revoice organizers were successful, um, say that they balance these two opposing positions, like, I mean then then what? Like you've got uh, you you can't sustain that tension over time. Like these two antithetical positions between gay identity, homosexual identity, sexual minority identity, and uh, Christian orthodoxy, like, over time, yeah. and pretty soon, like, one of those is going to be de-emphasized in favor of the other. Well, there there was a lot of argument that identity is wrapped too much in uh, Freudian thinking. It's over-sexualized. And so... When the average evangelical Christian hears the word gay, gay identity, gayness, they think, they wrongly think flamboyant, effeminate, uh, a, a lisp in the way they speak. They think palm out, limp palm type, and that's over-sexualized. And that's wrong. Shame on Christians. We need to get back to a more robust view of what identity is. And we need to go back to the Bible is what they would argue. Which I I think that I go, well, you just jettison scripture when you try to tie in homosexual uh, desire or deep aesthetic appreciation, as they would say when you tie that into Adam. In creation. In creation, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's possible, it's interesting that, that there there does seem to be a parallel here uh, in terms of what Ryan was asking about. In a sense, I think, Ryan, you're posing the question of whether their position is a transitional position because the two, yeah. the whole idea of homosexual identity um, uh, and yet... Um, uh, yeah, on the other hand, the maintenance of Christian orthodoxy do not appear to be congruent with one another. Right. And therefore, is this affirmation of a biblical perspective um, whilst uh, pushing a contrary practice, maybe a transitional position before moving to a, a more hard and fast position yeah. um, that's yeah. more pro the homosexual uh, in the church? But um, it's interesting that older liberalism itself began very much by an orthodox affirmation uh, and, and, you know, claiming to ground itself in the Bible, um, but with vastly different interpretations of what these texts mean. Uh, Josh, do you see here, um, I mean, that was, of course, the very idea of the term heresy. Um, uh, The term heresy itself would be uh, unnecessary um, if it didn't have a pretense at Christianity. So heresies are the very idea of them is that they are they look like or are pretending to be or look very much like the real thing, um, but they are heretical because there is at some point a radical distortion of the biblical message or biblical ethics. Um, do you see this? From what you saw at the conference, are we in a transitional phase really here? Are we in the kind of, I mean, my, my view, Josh, is, is that 
this whole issue of sexual identity, homosexuality right now, is, uh, and the groups that are within evangelicalism that are softening their position on this issue of sexual identity, on homosexuality, and the whole LGBTQ22SA ad nauseum um, uh, identities, that, that um, these are, in fact, um, essentially moving in the direction, if they're not already heretical, they are seeking to move the church inexorably uh, in, in, in that direction, and that we are dealing here with essentially the new liberalism. This is the, the, the old liberal battle at the end of the 19th, early part of the 20th, 20th century, hollowed out the mainline churches on, um, they actually focused on different issues, although when you look at the literature, the sexuality issue was just under the surface there. It was there, but it wasn't front and center. Front and center was miracles, the resurrection, of course, the authority of the Bible and so forth. Um, this seems to me to be the new defining issue of our era Absolutely. in the church. How do you see it? At the moment, no. I, I think you. I think you, you've you've got your finger on the pulse of where it's going and where it's going to lead. I met uh, at least three families who had brought their high school children to this event because they didn't know where to go. They felt the church had no good resources anymore for their child who just came out of the closet as gay. So they're going to this. Uh, excuse the expression, but they're going to their, the shaman, the, the latest shaman, to tell them and equip them. And I think it's going to lead them into into a complete pagan view of the Bible. Can I ask if uh, at the conference, um, I mean, it certainly seems as Ryan just read in some of the preparatory material um, where it's self-described as a gathering designed to encourage and support gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted and other gender or sexual minority Christians who adhere to traditional Christian teaching about gender, marriage and sexuality. Um, the adoption of the very language of gay, lesbian, and sexual minorities um, in the same breath as a sexual minority identity in the same breath as Christian yeah. does seem somewhat oxymoronic. Uh, the, 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 the battle is first and foremost in this whole area of language. It seems to me that as soon as you adopt the language gay, Christian, lesbian, sexual minorities, you're already uh, giving real identity. You're already actually redefining the human person in terms of sexual identity. So it's a bit odd that they would accuse Christians of some sort of bizarre Freudianism when the very language that they are using is socially constructed, is deliberately constructed to create new sexual identities. Yeah. Well, you know, and Preston Sprinkle, he's one of the speakers at at Revoice. I, I attended his workshop, which was how to be a straight ally for the gay Christian. Uh, and he argues one of the points that you need to make sure you're using whatever said term that per person desires to be identified by, because if you don't, you dehumanize them. Uh, you're not being you dehumanize them by by refusing to use their preferred pronoun. Correct. Their pronoun or how they would identify their their sexual desires. So if if they want to be queer, call them queer. If they want to be considered bi, call it bi. 
You know, and, and then on top of that, it's, uh, you know, there's pastors. I I went out to one of the events, uh, the, the community developing times, and I'm watching this PCA pastor repent for his denomination and tell these folks at his table how sorry he is for the hatred and the bigotry. And uh, it, it is a complete surrender. Uh it's I, I think it just I thought of the uh, the Israelites when they were going to the Philistines to have their weapons sharpened. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, that's a, that's a profound comparison there. Um, yeah. Tell tell me about some of these workshops that you attended. You mentioned that you went to one about how to be how to be a straight ally, how to be a gay ally, like. What's uh, what, what's involved in that? What were some of yeah. the some of the prescriptions there? Yeah, so I went to, to three workshops, and we could go over these one by one if you like. But uh, I, I mentioned Preston Sprinkle, and uh, I was a bit ignorant of who Preston was at the beginning. And from what I hear, he's he's a uh, very popular, sought out uh, fellow in in mostly in Baptistic circles. But he had uh, let's see here. He had seven points on what it meant to be a straight ally for the for the gay Christian. He says, one, learn the art of listening. You need to listen to understand. Don't listen to refute an argument. Don't wait so that you can have uh, the final say in a talk. Don't listen so that you can counsel. Simply just listen. Point two, use humanizing language. Uh, if it's a transsexual, uh, use them in their, their preferred, if they're male to female, call them she. Uh, if they're just a cross-dresser, call them by their desired uh, term. Be sensitive to their language. Language can open doors. Language could shut doors. Don't, and this one I agreed with. I would say hearty amen to number three, which is don't change your theology. Uh, male and female it's mar- it is what uh, is the proper under uh, sex is for marriage. Um, so don't don't change your theology on on sexuality, um, but also don't look to f- pick a fight and to find a place where you disagree with them. Number four, don't be a hypocrite. And he uh, he went into the problem of the church with divorce, the problem of the church with pornography, and says if you're going to call out somebody on homosexuality, be sure that you are addressing sin in your own camp number five i'd say five. i'd say amen to that too well, yeah absolutely right uh be eager to apologize be clear on what and why corporate uh, apology uh for the sins of a nation by one person was a biblical concept number six take risks uh that means uh invite them to your home uh be known as as the christians who uh, loves the homosexual and and invites them to uh, watch their children or watch your children for if you want to go out on a date uh, encourage them to attend Thanksgiving dinner Christmas dinner uh, Boxing Day etc. Number seven uh, be the and this one this point here I I would like to really would like to stress because I saw this consistent in the three workshops that I attended was number seven, be the reward that Jesus promised. In Mark 10, 29, verse 30, uh, the disciples come to Christ and say, have we not left all? 
And then our Lord says, uh, no one who's left mother or father for the sake of the gospel will not who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Uh, we, the church, the straight ally, is to, is to be that reward to the LGBTQ community. And what I saw was the important, was the, uh, that I realized that the LGBTQ community has, in their minds, have created this, uh, this eschatology has been realized for them. That they have the hundredfold mothers, fathers, lands, and it's chosen family because the bi their biological family, for the most part, have rejected them because of their sexual identity and because they are following biblical sexual ethics or trying to, they can't have a biological family. So they have, it's a very important for them to create chosen family, create community. Uh, this is essential for them. Is there, um, is there an attempt, Josh, with that? Because I think any orthodox scripture upholding Christian would want to say that we would want to welcome into the life of the Christian church um, any individual who wants to A, learn about Christ uh, and the gospel and B, begin to practice a gospel-centered lifestyle that is uh, centered in repentance and faith and trust in Christ and be incorporated into the what we have always called the family of God in the life of the church. And whatever temptations people may be struggling with in whatever area of their lives, uh, extend hospita Christian hospitality. You know, uh, That would seem to me to be a basic principle. But here it seems to be invested with a new kind of meaning, um, a, 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 a meaning that is... Um, at least a, a distortion, it seems to me, of what um, Scripture is asking of us there. In other words, um, the, the, the sort of exhortation to be that extended family always seems to pull us in the direction that if we're not affirming, if affirmation is not there of identity, uh, of, of a particular sexual identity or of particular sexual desires, or even this whole notion that you've talked about of, as a, of a kind of normative creational state that may even um, transpose itself into the new Jerusalem, into the, into the kingdom. You'll come to that in a moment, I'm sure. Um, that there's always this pull that, that the hospitality that they talk about always seems to be loaded towards affirmation. It's not hospitality as hospitality as such. Mm -hmm. It's a hospitality geared towards this is how you affirm us in our desires, in our sense of identity. Um, did you hear an, uh, an emphasis at all at the conference on the sinfulness of um, aberrant sexual desires um, uh, or an emphasis on repentance from um, same-sex lust or, dare I say, the suggestion that there might be healing or restoration um, uh, to normative creational desire for the opposite sex, that that is part of and can be part of the experience. It's not the experience of every person who struggled with same-sex attraction, 
but can be part of the experience of a repentant believer who puts their faith in Christ, repents of um, uh, sexual uh, lust or sexual desire that is, doesn't conform to Scripture or sexual practices that don't conform to Scripture, and that actually healing and restoration and actually help, dare I say, <laughs> in our cultural moment, help therapy uh, f- for so that one might move towards a normative desire for members of the opposite sex. Was that even touched on? Was that even, or, or is that regarded as some kind of spiritual abuse? That would be spiritual abuse. And there was, uh, I, I, I made friends. Well, I use that. I want to use that word loosely, friends, uh, with one of the workshop speakers, and he's he was also a graduate of Covenant, and his workshop was geared on spiritual abuse. What do you do when your pastor? Uh, wants to counsel you into going into reparative therapy or into a lifestyle of continual repentance. Overall, I mean, you ask quite a loaded question and a very deep question, uh, which would take a lot of time to unpack. However, I would say this is that that event was not geared on repentance focus. It was a time to encourage people. And um, when I sat in at at the table eating lunch with those in attendance and any type of discussion that was ever geared around lust, it was always laughed about. Uh, the, the desire, the struggle was never with, with, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, and it, it was somewhat, let's push this off to the side. You're going to have some, some times where you're going to might trip. But let's not focus on that. Let's not focus on, on the mortification portion of your walk with Christ. You need to focus on that God loves you and affirms you. In fact, I sat with one speaker as he was counseling this young man to leave his church that he had been at uh, for a number of years. And I believe he was going, he was in, in uh, as an intern. And he was being counseled to leave this church and, and transition to another church. He said, when you're done and you're out of that church, what you need to do is go to masseuse. You need to strip down naked. If I'm being too graphic, I'll, I can tone it down. Uh, but strip down naked. At, and as he rubs you and, and you get erect, and if you've got a foot uh, or a tickling fetish, have him tickle your soles of your feet. And as you're listening to the, the weird Indian, the new age music, you're smelling the incense, hear God's affirmation over you that he loves you and that he made you this way. So this is this is the counsel, you know, this is the kind of counsel that's been given to, to folks who are looking either A, to get out of it or what to do with their issues. So the notion that the Apostle Paul advances in Romans 1 that these desires and practices are against nature that is, they're non-normative in terms of they're an aspect of our fallen condition, uh, and that when they are widely practiced in a culture and society, that is a mark that a society has been handed over to its idolatry, and that homosexual lust and praxis is, is actually a mark of a culture in the midst of judgment. Uh, you suggest, uh, you, I, I assume you're saying to us that that wasn't a focus of the conference. Absolutely not. In fact, you know, that was the other it's thing. a very it's diplomatic not, way to put it. <laughs> not just the focus, of, not was it not only the focus of the co- conference, is that I, I had mentioned there was side A and side B Christians who identify as gay. 
I assumed that everyone was in agreement that attended the 400 plus folks that were there, uh, minus myself and 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 another another gent who attended with me. That they, I assumed everyone was in that camp of side B, and I met quite a minor, uh, majority of folks who were still very much an active uh, homosexual lifestyle, uh, who had partners. Uh, uh, I didn't meet anyone who was married, but I did meet I did meet couples there, um, and I met folks who who had uh, just broken up with a, in a relationship and were at a place in their life they didn't know where they stood on the fence if they were side A or side B, uh, and then of course the, the you laid out the the correct orthodox view of the apostle Paul, but they would argue with Matthew Vines that the apostle Paul uh, had no no understanding of what it is to be gay and committed to a monogamous relationship. And, and they had t- completely drunken that Kool-Aid from that, from that poison well. Yeah. Well, for the benefit of our listeners, I think uh, it would be good to, to, to recommend to them uh, from an exegetical standpoint, uh, Robert Gagnon's uh, masterful study mm-hmm. on the Bible and homosexuality, which I don't think has been answered yet in terms of uh, his, his exegesis of the relevant biblical passages. I've always said Gagnon. Gagnon. Is it Fre- I've never met him. I've never heard it spoken. It is, it is uh, Gagnon. Uh, if you say Gagnon, he, he will be tickled that you pronounce it as the French do, but it, he goes by Gagnon. So probably, Ryan, you, you were more originally europeanly correct yes but yes. uh maybe uh, i was more american correct though <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's funny how uh how bad grammar can become good grammar <laughs> you will be assimilated <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Make sure to come back next Friday where we continue this conversation on Revoice with Joshua Gilo at Truth Exchange. Thanks for listening. Please like, share, rate this show, and don't forget to visit ezrainstitute.ca for more resources on cultural reformation.